Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Tom Eagles. Tom's editing on Jojo Rabbit won him an Ace Eddie for Best Editing for a Comedy. It was also nominated for an Oscar and a BAFTA Award. Tom's other work includes two other Taika Waititi films, Hunt for the Wilder People and What We Do in the Shadows. He has also worked on TV series including Ash vs. Evil Dead and Spartacus, among others. Tom and I conducted this interview just hours before he went to the 2020 Ace Eddies. So when we spoke, he had not yet won his Eddie for Jojo Rabbit. Are you going to the Eddies tonight? I'm going to the Eddies tonight, yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, so let's talk about the movie. I just watched it just now. It was really a super interesting, very entertaining movie. I would think that one of the biggest editing challenges for this film would have been walking the tightrope of tone between the comedic and the more dramatic, deeply moving moments. Talk to me about trying to, to balance tone in this movie. Yeah, I mean, that was on our mind every day. Every scene that I was cutting was always kind of aware of trying to get that tonal balance right. So we had a lot of material. We, um, you know, we definitely had the material to make a, a purely comedic film all the way through to the end, um, including a lot of improv. But on a, you know, on a structural level, we found that we wanted to kind of transition at a certain point in the film from comedy into drama. But we never wanted to lose either of those elements. So it was always a question of keeping the, both, all the balls in the air. So it was important to me that we had kind of signposts early on. Um, some people were a little bit alarmed by the scene where Jojo and Rosie walk into the square and they find some bodies hanging there. Because the film up to that point has been fairly light and, and comedic, aside from the rabbit death. But I, uh, I was always an advocate of having keeping that scene as early as possible because it kind of signposts where the film is going. And it also it also shows that we know that Nazis are no joke, you know. It's, it's been a comedy about Nazis, but this is what Nazis do. So we had to keep those two things in play. And then towards the end of the film, we really pulled out a lot of the comedy. So we took out gags, but we also took out characters that were too large and comedic. We didn't see so much of Rebel. We took out a lot of Adolf so that after the kind of um, midpoint kind of hairpoint, hairpin turn, you don't see so much of Adolf until the very end and Jojo has an opportunity to break up with him. So, yeah, so we, and, and then just on a performance level, you know, how much do we lean on comedy? We've got all these gags, we've got a lot of improv, how much of it do we use and do we not use? When's a good time to make a joke and, and when isn't? And sometimes you'd have funny scenes and then emotional scenes and sometimes you have scenes where you're asking the audience to keep both of those things in play, which was very difficult. So you have scenes like Stephen Merchant's sequence, whole sequence in the movie, where he comes to the house playing a Gestapo agent. We've got Stephen Merchant, so we, and we had all these great gags. We want it still to be funny, but we need you to still feel that tension. 
And so we kind of leaned on Jojo and Elsa for that. So sure, Stephen can, can do a gag, but then we're back to Jojo and we, we know what's at stake. And also Stephen himself just had this amazing kind of ability to, he would perform these gags, but there was something very sinister about him. And he did give us these takes, the, the ones that we use, where he's just, he is kind of buffoonish, but he's also terrifying, which I think is in some ways quite true to life. You know, these characters might be silly, but they're also the same people who, he's a bureaucrat, you know, who could wind up killing you. So it was... Every day, every scene, had tone in mind. What um, were some of the things that guided you? Did you do screenings, or was it just the two of you, Taika and you, saying, uh, we got to cut back on the comedy? Yeah, it was both. Um, both. Yeah. So Taika always screens a lot. You know, every couple of weeks, every time we changed anything significant with the movie, we would screen initially to, like, a small group of friends of Taika's, and... Um, and, you know, always new people. So it was people were always seeing it for the first time. And then gradually we grew to, you know, we would do friends and family at the Fox lot, maybe 80 people. And then eventually we got big screenings, three, 400 people. Um, we would get them to do full questionnaires. And also you got to sit in a room and feel where the film was lagging, what jokes were getting laughs, obviously, but also things like, you know, what things were getting gasps. Or, you know, there there are certain moments when we were getting the cut right that people would respond in really visceral ways. They would gasp, they would cheer at the end of the film, you know. So it's a really useful process for us. Is there a key to executing the transitions between some of those big tonal changes? Did you find, let's just cut hard and that'll, you know, like a, like a punchline? Yeah, it depends. I think the, the kind of pivotal scene, which is kind of a spoiler scene, there's a midpoint in the movie. And I think actually we worked quite hard to keep things light moving, leading up to that midpoint. So that's a good example of like a handbrake. Um, Jojo's in such a light, innocent place. Uh, and then he stands up and, and you see those shoes. Yeah. So someone important to him dies. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that scene, because I definitely felt like you do in many movies where something like that happens. You need to give the audience some time. And, and can you talk to me about kind of building the response time for the audience into, the, into a scene like that? You're right. Um, that's always hard because people who are, who are in on the process and have seen it a bunch of times are always going to tell you, we're not learning anything new here, let's move on. But yeah, it was, it was really important to just have that space. So I guess you're talking about the, the moments where Jojo's just sitting there. Yeah, and there's some shots of a rooftop. And to be honest, I can't tell you, you know, there's no definitive meaning, uh, I think, behind the rooftops. For me, it felt like, it felt very anthropomorphic. It was like his, his pain was being witnessed by the town. Um, but for some people, they think about, you know, who might be in all of those attics. So everyone takes something out of it. And, and that's the beautiful thing when you give people space to just stop and look at some images. And, um, and music was really important there. So I had tempted to, um, I think, a Liszt piano piece, which was kind of gentle, but eventually quite overblown by the time he he stabs Elsa. So, and, and it was always the intent to do that without words. That's one of Michael's pieces that I love the most because his score really kind of nails that that emotional journey from just kind of emptiness and loss into 
anger, but it's almost a, you kind of kind of see in Jojo, he just doesn't, he, he doesn't hate her even, he just doesn't know what to do at that point. Like, this is what his, everything he's learned up to this point would tell him to do. But he's kind of broken, you know, and then you see him collapse on the floor. So it's really important, I think, and especially in a movie like ours that is quite fast-paced at certain points that you also give audiences a break. And by doing that, by, uh, you know, over-cranking the pace in some areas, you really emphasise the moments where you do stop and breathe. Um, And they're always contentious, but really important, I thought. Uh, There's a lovely little featurette that they did on the editing of the movie. You're interviewed, and Taika says some lovely things about you, including your sense of pace and rhythm. And I definitely got that sense. Like there, And and this happens in many movies, especially when they're beautifully edited, is there are super fast-paced, frenetic, you know, moments, and then you get a dynamic of a pause and slowing down. Like I think of when he's looking for Elsa for the first time, this shots are very slow and methodical. There's a great sense of tension, but then there's super fast war footage and comedy scenes. Talk to me about building those and, and juxtaposing the fast with the slow. Yeah. I mean, well, that sequence that you're talking about was really um, informed by genre. I thought of it as a little horror film within the film. And when I read the script, that's the first thing I said to Taika, and he was like, yes, we need to score it that way. But he was also, he wanted to be careful that we didn't slip into pure horror. It has to be this kind of childlike, innocent horror, so that we know that we're seeing this from his point of view. We're not saying she's a monster, but we are saying he thinks she's a monster. So that was a a delicate balance. But yeah, I mean, that was just um, horror film editing. You know, you kind of stretch it out as long as it can possibly go. Um, And she was great, you know, with her performance as well, the fingers around the doorway and then walking down the the banister. And you're also driven a little bit by the dailies that you get. Taika at one point asked me to cut a version of the film where we literally took out all of the air. Really? It was Dragnet style um, in the, all the scenes between Jojo and Elsa where they just bam, 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 hit each other and it was horrible and we knew it would be horrible but what it told you is where the emphasis needed to go and where the pauses needed to be. Um, so it was kind of a useful process and so every scene should kind of, even in the fast scenes should kind of operate like that, bam, bam, bam and then they deliver you somewhere. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes just having enough storage isn't enough, because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing, and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Each system comes with built-in software, so you search, tag, and preview all of your storage, backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get up to 10% off of new EVO systems by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. One of the other things that, um, there's a quote from you in that little um, 
featurette uh, talking about the actor that played Jojo and how you would find these perfect little moments with him and then build a scene around that. How do you build a scene around a specific point in a performance? Do you go from there and build out or do you just know it's there and build it? In I think you know fashion? it's there. You know that you have to land in the close-up on him if that's what it is, you know, at a certain point, and meaning and maybe you don't even have the whole performance because often you find with kids it's a little bit hard to know where the gold will come and maybe it comes just as their performance is breaking up. Quite often with kids, they'll give you something really perfect or with Roman, you know, and then then the kind of rational voice breaks in and he stops himself and says, wait, am I doing it right? You know, he's he was very eager to, to please and he's a really smart kid so the, his brain would take over and it's like you want the bit just before the brain takes over where he's just innocent because that's what Jojo is although he's a, a fanatic at the beginning of the movie it's only because he's been brainwashed and radicalised um, and he's such a kind of an open book uh, emotionally you know and, and you said something super interesting to me that I wonder if you can articulate you said there's that moment you have to cut away just before his brain kicks in. I totally get that. How do you know his brain kicks in and that ruins the performance? Uh, well, you see, I mean, sometimes it's very literally he'll stop himself and go, hang on, what am I, what's my, you know, what am I supposed to be thinking and saying here? And and I think, um, you know, Rachel House, who, who worked with the child actors on this movie, I think that was one of her biggest jobs is to try and keep them spontaneous and keep them in the moment and stop them from trying to be actors and, and trying to overthink the performance. Yeah, how do you, how do you communicate that? I think you, you just see it. I, I think it's... I think to be an editor, you have to be kind of empathic or empathetic you have to be able to read what's going on in someone's eyes. And we all interpret it differently, but for me, I would definitely know, okay, that's, it's done. <laughs> that's the moment. And that's when it starts and that's where it begins. That's what we've got. And we have to, you know, build around that. Did you have to have like two different editor brains going on, one for the absurdist humor and one for the dramatic, or you didn't really have to think about performance that way? Uh, no, I, th I think Taika had to think about it in terms of he had three different types of actors. You know, he had really straight actor actors like Scarlett or Thomason, and he had the kids, and then he also had these comedians who he'd riff with and throw them lines and they would improv. For me, I, I actually, you know, as much as we've talked about it, I don't see such a huge gulf between comedy and drama. Comedy is just a great tool, you know, it opens a door on people that can get people to laugh you loosen them up and they can look at things that they might not want to look at they can think about things differently um, which is quite important when you're trying to persuade people to empathize with a nazi a little nazi i don't even think of them as different genres you know it's it's all part of the same thing and good humor should also have all the same elements of storytelling and emotion built into it the the humor that i love is um is stuff that makes you feel something and that you can relate to. Uh, I, I don't know too much of Taika's background from being in New Zealand, but as a comedian, I often talk about editing as joke-telling, that you're trying to boil things down to just the essence, and you have to get the timing right. Um, do you find that Taika's comedy chops are informing his ability to help you edit? I think so, yeah. I mean, that's what Hitchcock said, right? A good editor should be able to tell a joke. And um, 
I mean, you have to put some caveats on that because good editors often are people who like to stay in a dark room, <laughs> not talking to, to, you know, so I can't imagine myself getting up on stage and telling a joke, but I think understanding the rhythms of a joke is, uh, a joke is just a story, right? It has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has to deliver you somewhere. Ideally, you shouldn't see it coming, but it should make sense when you get there. So yeah, I think, um, I think Taika as a comedian, you know, with his background in, in comedy, it really gives him a head start on on dramatic script writing and um, and working with me in in the edit also. I think it's the same with comedic actors. They're often actually really great actors. So they have great rhythm. They can kind of understand the structure of a script, uh, which was important to us. You know, sometimes it had to be kind of dragnet fast, and then but it has to then deliver you somewhere. Uh, how did your relationship start, and and how do you guys collaborate? New Zealand's kind of one big small town, so, <laughs> um, you know, you wind up knowing a lot of people in the film industry. The first time I met Taika, I woke up and he was crashed on my couch because uh, it was that kind of house and he was that kind of guy, you know, he was he was busy making art films and probably not getting paid a lot of money to, to do them, um, and he was in town, so... Uh, but I really got to know him through my wife, Danelle, who's a um, makeup designer, and hair designer on Jojo Rabbit, but also on some of his earlier movies. So she went down to the East Cape to shoot Boy. Uh, and I maybe went down and visited once, but I also met Taika and Ainsley at our place when they were going through that process of planning the look of the film. And so from there, you know, I went to some screenings and had some ideas, and I was very, very happy that they took on some of those thoughts. And, um, and I wound up cutting trailers for him for Boy. And that was the first time, little thing that we did together. It was just a great process because he loved what I'd done and he would amplify it. He's like, I love that, I want more of that, let's take that and build it into a bigger joke. So it was definitely the best trailer I ever did. And then uh, then he gave me a call um, to come down to Wellington to work on what we do in the shadows. That was the first feature we worked on together. Oh, how do you collaborate? Tucker's great because he, you know, it's, it, I've worked with all kinds of directors and I kind of like all the different styles. You know, some people will sit right up at your elbow with you the whole time. And that's great because you get a lot of time collaborating in the room. With Taika, it's the opposite. He tries to get as much distance as he can from the shoot. And so I'm kind of a tool in that process. You know, I have just, I, I wasn't there. I always stay away from the set. I don't know how long a shot took to set up or what the intention was. I'm just watching the dailies and giving him my response to that. And then he gives you a lot of time throughout the process. I had like two weeks to do an assemble. Um, and he encouraged me to, to be harsh, you know, to cut stuff, that cut scenes that weren't working. And then various points throughout the edit, he would go away for, you know, fairly long periods because he had so much other stuff on as well. And, um, and in those periods, I was encouraged to just come up with stuff. So I find it really fruitful. I mean, when a director does that, you really, it puts the onus on you to, to keep coming up with ideas. And then he just, you just throw as much stuff at, at him as you can and he filters it through his unique perspective. And, um, you know, he likes some stuff, he doesn't like some other stuff. And, and that's how you get a Taika movie. <laughs> it's interesting you point out that he said to be brutal and cut stuff out in the assembly because... I've talked to a bunch of editors about that, and obviously it depends on the director, but some people say, no, that assembly has to be the script. 
And other people say, oh, no, if there's a bad scene, you, you lose it. It's very unusual in my experience. Most people would want to see the whole script um, assembled. But I think he knew that if, if we did that and um, if we included all of the improvs and everything, it would be a fairly unwatchable experience. <laughs> So he wanted to, to watch a movie, you know, when he sat down the first time, he wanted to have something that he could respond to. And I think I was probably still a little bit too cautious for his liking in, in some ways. You know, we had to break the screening up and have some breaks because the film was still so long. And then, you know, it's not like he's necessarily going to agree with me on what to cut, but at least you kind of get a sense of the shape of the movie and you're not just watching this interminable succession of gags and everything that we ever thought was any good. Um, but definitely a lot of people want you to just bank that. that food. I mean, I called it a compile, which was just all of the scenes in the movie. That's what I did for the first week. I just finished cutting, finished assembling all my scenes. Even within that, it's you know a question of which improvs you want to use and what, what paths you follow. But yeah, and then to have another week to just try and actually craft something was great. How long was that first thing that you showed Taika? I don't know what that was. I, I asked my assistant um, the other day how long the first assemble was. He said two hours, 40 minutes, but I think he might have been referring to that compile. Mm. Um, I think I probably... 240 is not bad. 240 is okay, yeah. I mean, I do I, I do cut tight. Like, uh, I don't... I'm not asking the director where the cuts should be. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to get it right the first time, every time. And you know that you're going to have to keep reworking it um, and break that work and throw it out and start again. But it helps to get a sense of what the, the overall feeling of the movie will be if, you, if you're cutting, if you're not holding back. So did you do the whole credit sequence at the beginning of the movie or was that outsourced? Yes. Uh, well, no, sorry. The, the actual graphics were outsourced. Well, not the graphics themselves. The whole, I mean, because it's, it's a lot of footage in that. No, that was that was kind of a pet project for me. That was um, a whole lot of fun to to get a whole bunch of Nazis and make them sing along to the Beatles and clap their hands and look like they were playing instruments. That was um, really fun for me and took a lot of work to, you know, we had to gather a lot of footage and then I had to sift through it. So one of our assistants, Morgan Kern, was in charge of, you know, contacting stock footage libraries and, and getting as much stuff as possible. To explain to someone who hasn't seen it, there's a lot of footage of, like, propaganda films from the Nazis. Well, that's right. We, um, I mean, we leaned on the, the triumph of the will. It kind of opens in a similar way to the, the triumph of the will. But yeah, I, I just found um, a little bit of ex abstraction was quite good there. So we don't see much of the real Adolf. It was too, it was too jarring going from Tyker's Adolf to the, the real deal. And it also made him scarier and more imposing to suggest him. So we see the back of his head, we see his hand, and we focus a lot on hands in that sequence. So, and that somehow, not just the Hitler salute that everyone does, but everyone reaching out to touch him, that in combination with the music, felt like it really communicated the hysteria, the, the Beatlemania of, of the moment. So that was a lot of fun. We did try to outsource it at one point because I was so busy with cutting the film and all the notes on the film. Um, but it didn't really, you know, they didn't really hit it. So I just carried on. <laughs> I loved it. That was a, it was a really fun, a fun watch. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed that. And we talked about, we talked a little bit about music and score versus needle drop. Did you go through a variety or had those pieces been kind of preordained or stuff you um, thought of? A combination. 
Um, I would say compared to Wilder People or especially Shadows or other films I've done for other filmmakers, this was actually much more, uh, you know, those films I came up with a lot of the, the needle drops. This one, Taika, already had the Beatles for the beginning and he already had um, Heroes for the end. He knew he wanted to um, to have those German language, uh, English or American pop songs. Um, and so then the, the third one that we found during the process was Roy Orbison, Mama. And he had a couple of other things he didn't know necessarily where he wanted to use them, like the Tom Waits. Can't remember if he knew he wanted to use that over the Hitler Youth montage, but we also tried Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Tears, Tears for Fears, and, and we tried The Cure, Boys Don't Cry. So I always, even if he would put stuff in the script, I would always challenge him and try some other tunes, and then I would know, you know, if he's really, <laughs> he says, no, we, this is really it. This is He's fixed on it. But having had that direction from the script, or maybe he emailed me some of these, I, I had a good idea of how, you know, where we were sitting musically and to, how to flesh that out. Temp was a lot harder. Temp, he said, I just don't want it to sound like um, any other film in the genre. I don't want it to feel like a Schindler's List or Boy in the Strut pajamas. It should feel like one of my movies. But when I went back and looked at his movies, you know, the first few itself and a, a guitar and a drum machine, and that didn't quite feel feel quite right. So the key when it all came together for me was I found a whole lot of Carl Orff pieces that were written for children's ensembles lots of flutes and little drums and I think actually played by kids. So some of it's quite martial, but it's a bit wonky. So it has a sense of innocence, a sense of not um, war, but kids playing at war that kind of fit with Jojo's character. And then I found, um, you know, some John Cage pieces that were really weird and fruity. And we used those for moments when Adolf and Jojo are freaking out or, or for when he gets um, knocked out by the grenade and he's in a kind of altered state. And then um, I found these heart pieces by Henri Mathieu, which we used for Rosie. So to kind of indicate the mother's theme. So some of those things found their way into the score a little bit, but also Michael just brought his whole, whole just a great sense of heart and emotion to the movie. And he was able to write us themes. We always knew that we wanted a rosy theme that would pay off when you see those shoes a little bit. Um, that's very hard to do with temping. We scored it to a piece from the 400 Blows, the Truffaut film, beautiful piece of Jean Constantin's score, but it was hard to then reverse engineer that and, and fit it into other parts of the movie. You know, So that was the beauty of, of getting Michael on board. Uh, I know you have to get ready to go off to the awards ceremony. Uh, right. You probably you got a tux standing nearby. You're st- sitting there in a T-shirt. I got a suit, yeah. I'm <laughs> saving the tux for the, the next one. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Oscars, sure. My final question is one about judging editing, which is you were just nominated for an Oscar in Infinity for this film. What do you look for and what do you think your colleagues look for when you and they have to judge someone else's editing? I mean, it's impossible to do, really, isn't it? Unless you've seen the script, the, the real original script, and you've seen all of the rushes, the dailies, you can't really judge what someone did on a movie. All you can say is, did I like that movie? And if you if you like the movie, then you like the editing. It's it's as simple as that. If the, At the very least, they didn't screw it up. I mean, I don't think about it much more deeply than that. I don't think you can judge it 
I think some people were drawn towards films that have a lot of cuts and are exciting and um, have really highly visible editing, but knowing that 90% of what we do is invisible, it, it, I don't see how it's you can really judge it. Um, so I just feel very lucky to, to have been nominated, um, and I'm glad that people like the film, and I take that as a compliment, whether it was nominated for editing or Best Picture or whatever. Congratulations on it. It was really a very enjoyable watch, very deeply moving, too. Congratulations, and uh, have fun tonight. Thank you so much. Wonderful talking to you. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out Pro Video Coalition for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Tom Eagles. I'm Steve Hulfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hulfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a film-making or film-loving friend. <laughs> <laughs>